Hello, and welcome to the Learn It podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. In our first series, we're looking at how to reopen education settings in the wake of COVID-19, including how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, education reporter Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Cherner Ba, a feminist activist who has dedicated his life to building and amplifying the voices of girls and young people around the world and in his home country of Sierra Leone. Turner's work in education is focused on giving girls the curriculum, the social capital, and the space to find, develop, and use their voices. The lack of education and critical thinking in our society is not an accident. It's deliberate. Governments understand that if the populace had the tools of critical thinking and analysis to reorganize society in a way that will work for them, they will not be able to hold on to power. Sierra Leone is a fascinating education case study right now. Lessons from Ebola shaped how the country responded to COVID, making sure schools opened as soon as they could, but also quickly creating creative content, which the government distributed through radio and mobile platforms. Sierra Leone allocates 21% of its GDP to education, a share its president has committed to keeping. Turner explains how they got to such a remarkable commitment and what they will need to do to maintain it. I learned so much from this conversation and I hope you do too. Turner. Nice to speak to you. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure, Jenny. I've heard you say that we need to position education as a transformational sector. Why do we need to do that? Well, if you think about the problems that afflict us as a society, the things we should, we care deeply about, whether it's poverty, if you think about inequality, if you think about the health crisis we face right now, at the heart of all of these problems, if there's a magical bullet that can transform them, will be education. But it's not just education, it's the type of education and how we position education as having both the transformative power and being a transformative tool. There's not a, a debate around the value of education per se. And that's both, you know, it's both our, our, our blessing and our cause, those of us who care about this issue. Because you're not, you know, governments are not fighting against you on education. If you're fighting for all the rights and things like that, but the, the but the downside of that is then it's just treated as this. It's kind of cosmetic. It's just something. It's part of the furniture in the house. It's just there, and you know, I don't know what you're talking about. We spend on education anyway, but the transformative power of education requires a level of intentionality both in the resources, the organization, the movement, and the content. In all of those spheres, you really need a level of intentionality and a transformative element, and that's what's oftentimes missing. So I think if we want to change the problems of the world and transform the way our society is, we'll need to reposition education much more centrally um, and, and that should be reflected in the resources and how we spend them. I want to dig a little bit into that because it's such an important point. We assume in technology, you have to keep innovating. 
you assume in healthcare, you have to keep innovating and pushing and, and be at kind of the cutting edge. We don't assume that about education. Why is that? Why is it the furniture in the house and not a priority? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's a combination of factors. And one of those is just the history of education, education in, in poor um, colonized societies. It was seen as a package that was being delivered and it was delivered from a very colonial lens. It was very top down. And so you do not question it, the way that education kind of is delivered even in the classroom. The teacher is in front and the students are there and your job is to just consume it. And we're socialized into that. And that socialization as well fits into as well in the policy process, in the policy space. Um, There's also been a lack of really radical organizing around education. Because again, it's not a, it's just considered, you know, oh yes, you know, we all believe education is important and there's these all benign things and the political class are, are not challenged. Even the education sector itself is a reflection of that organization, of that socialization, of that, you know, it's just, this is the way it is. Teachers are important. You have to pay them. You have to buy books. You have to have textbooks. There's not, and, and, it's, and it's, it's an irony, right? Because education actually, true education requires critical thinking. It requires critical questioning. But we cannot also ignore the role that power plays in all of that. And when I think about my country, Sierra Leone, we used to be referred to as the Athens of West Africa. We used to have a lot of, uh, it used to be a, a Mecca, a place where people all around um, Africa came for education. But successive regimes, with intention to perpetuate their stay in power via corrupt means, deliberately underinvested in education and did not prioritize education. So I tell people that the lack of education and critical thinking in our society is not an accident. It's deliberate. Governments understand that if the populace had the tools of critical thinking and analysis to reorganize society in a way that will work for them, these people will not have power. They will not be able to hold on to power. And I think that same principle is also present in the way the global education system is organized because there are people who hold power, who do not want to give up that power and who see education and the way that the structure works is in that same way. Because if, we, if we're really going to throw in um, the kind of radical thinking that's required to transform education and make it even and accessible for everybody everywhere around the world, then a lot of people who hold power today will not hold power, including in the sector. Sierra Leone spends 21% of GDP on education. Yes. How did you get to that? What was that journey? We reached an inflection point. <laughs> we're one of the poorest countries in the world and we were not getting better. We've had number and number of crises and emergencies. The conflict, the civil conflict, made things even worse. We, the society basically went into an abyss. And then we had Ebola, which killed thousands and thousands of our countrymen. It decimated an already incredibly weak health infrastructure. And then we've had a number of other so-called natural emergencies. These are obviously man-made um, climate-related crises. At the end of all of this, there's been like two or three major elections in which there's been 
big national conversation about what is needed. And I think it became really clear in this country that what will sell will be somebody who will put education at the center of their governing agenda. And the opposition party at the time, and this is again, years and years of activists working on this issue, promised that if they won the election, they will make education a priority to transform this country. And we've held them to that. And to their credit, the, the new president who's been in power now for about two years has stuck onto that uh, promise. But I say it's a combination of factors. It's just the fact was just in our face that there's only way we can re-engineer this country was to rethink how we prioritize education and the resources that we're spending education. And I'm very, very proud of my country for now being one of the countries that are spending the highest um, in, in this part of the world on education and the commitments to continue to do so even in the face of this crisis. I'm curious, when you got to 21%, what did that growth look like? And then in light of this crisis, how do you reposition with less to do more? Are you seeing innovations that are making you optimistic right now? Well, that, that's a really great question. And, and I think it's been a journey st still for this government. And I, um, I think when they came to power, in the first instance, the a disproportionate amount of the money was spent on just access. And they made education free, which was not. So that meant they were now paying school fees all across the country. So almost all of the money went into paying school fees and paying teachers' salaries. Um, that's good, but as you know, that's, <laughs> you know, the baseline is so low, that's not going to transform it. And they had a number of incredibly retrogressive policies. Um, what has happened in the past year and six months is they have been asking the hard questions. What do we need to do? What are the investments that we need to make to be able to make a difference? Because all that money that they spent in the first year and a half, they were seeing that it was only making a minor difference. Again, it was, it was good. It was a good commitment. But you need more radical thinking. Um, in a country like Sierra Leone, again, we're talking about 70% about illiteracy levels. Um, lack of teachers, the fact that you don't have female teachers, only about less than 30% of teachers in the school system in this country are female. And we know how that has massive implications for particularly female students and in general, the lack of early childhood education. So what we're seeing them doing is, which are things that we're excited about, is an investment, for example, in early childhood learning. They are testing some what would be the best investment that will make the biggest difference in, in early childhood learning? We are in discussion with the government now on girls' education specifically. One of those that they are talking about, that I, and I know that they have made progress in, is every year a girl stays in school, there is an investment in their girl's life. And so whether it's in an account, it's a cash transfer in their girl, and to make it universal. So Because right now in Sierra Leone, only one in 10 girls who start school complete school. Uh, you're not going to deal with education problems in this country if you do not radically transform that. And so one way is looking at the, the demand side of that and, and trying to support parents and, you know, to say, if you're giving your girls into marriage and they are having, getting pregnant because of resources, that's one thing we can do to solve that problem. There's also the investment in teachers and making sure that you can get the right kinds of teachers into school and changing the way that the school system works. 
uh, the school curriculum is changing. There's now a uh, reintroduction of comprehensive sexuality education in schools, which is, in my view, is, is really radical and, and transformative. And then at the policy level, a new overall policy of radical inclusion in education. And this idea means they're going to do everything they can, including resources, policy, time, and personnel to make sure that they're building bridges to get every child into school and that child to stay in school. And that's the overall frame. That means pregnant girls that were banned in school are now going to be supported to be in school as long as they can. And we're working with them to write the policies to make sure that that happens. That means girls who are in poor rural communities are going to get even additional incentives to stay in school. That means we're going to invest a little bit more intentionally to get uh, children with disabilities into the school system and provide the support for them to be in school and, and to be able to stay in school. So those are still, those are ideas, but you know, transformation requires ideas. And we now have the ideas put in place. We now have the institutional support to those ideas. We now have the budgetary commitments as well to those ideas. So where government is in the process of working through the implementation, and obviously, as you know, <laughs> you're working this field, the devil is always in the details. I'm curious how you think about the role of parents, because as you just pointed out, I mean, they're the ones you have to convince to keep the kids in school, right? And obviously, economic incentives are very powerful, and it sounds like you're addressing those, but I'm curious how you would over their minds. I've always believed that people are rational. Parents are rational. We may not understand that. We may not agree with their rationalization, but they're rational. You know, parents do not give their kids into marriage because they hate them. They give their kids into marriage because they believe that's the best choice they're going to make right now, both within the society and in their lives for their child to have a reasonable outcome. And they do things as well rationally for their own ego, but that's a rationalization. So I think one of the big things to do is to engage with that thinking and to provide choice and alternatives, right? And I think that's really important. You know, the, these parents themselves are victims of a system and they have been reproduced by this system of oppression and patriarchy that you know, has brutalized all of us and that made them believe that the choice is a binary. You know, your child gets marriage or gets to school. I think we need to change that. We need to make sure we're providing parents with the tools. So A, it's engaging them um, at the mind, but I don't think it's a sensitization effort. I think it's about providing tangible options in, in, in our society. I think it's about government providing financial incentives. I think it's about providing the laws. I think it's making sure that, again, people adhere to laws. If you say, listen, you know, if government says, A, we provide first incentives for you to make sure your child goes to school and you don't have to pay for it, and we actually support you for that child to be in school, and then B, we're going to now set up laws and systems to make sure that the people that flout that are in a community-sensitive way, creates some accountability. And the, and the people in power that support the flouting of that get held to account as well by the system. So I think there will be different levels of doing that. And what we're trying to encourage these governments to do and think about is that level of, of, of thinking. And, and at the community level, education has always been, again, because of its colonial history here and its importation, it's been viewed as this privilege. It's a reward for good behavior. This is why government would ban girls who get pregnant, right? It's the idea that you've done something bad and so we're going to take this thing away from you. Um, so people also see that frame and they see the way it operates. 
and and incentive as well for education. People go to school and you know, for, especially for females, you complete high school and you get no jobs and you still end up just being married and selling in the same market next to you. So that incentive structure needs to change. The society needs to value education. For us, the organizing work is to work with communities to change the incentive structure, to see the value in that education and to give them the choices, tangible choices for them to know that, hey, you know, you can't just give your child in, into marriage. There are other ways for you to get money and for you to get esteem in your society, reward system in your society, because that we ignore that, but that's also incredibly powerful. What did you all learn in Ebola about closing schools, some of the consequences for girls in particular, and how is that influencing what's happening now with COVID-19? I think it's really shocked a number of people to realize that for particularly girls, a school is not just a learning place. The school is the center of a complex social safety net, social safety structure for girls. Place for, you know, with the school feeding program, that's where they got food. But for girls as well, just having social capital is incredibly important. A place to meet your friends, to talk about the things that are affecting you in your life, to get in touch with people that are potential mentors in your life. And the absence of that had some disastrous consequences. Girls were isolated and then they took on additional burden in their, in their homes. You know, when there's a health emergency, um, girls take on caregiving roles. They protected, they were supposed to provide for their families. Uh, they were supposed to take care of their sick loved ones. And so both, if you look at the Ebola numbers, the numbers of infections among females was higher, particularly among younger females. Um, but as I said, the number of transactional sex. Obviously, we live in a highly patriarchal, sexualized society where girls' bodies um, easily are reduced to a credit card in terms of em emergency. And th that phenomenon increased in the middle of Ebola. Pregnancy rates skyrocketed to the point that it was everything everybody was talking about. Ironically, we had come in and said, when in the Ebola response, you have to be thinking about girls, people thought we were crazy and unreasonable. And then six months, one year into it, the, the country was shocked that we had such high rates of teenage pregnancy in the country and so many myriad of other complex issues that girls were dealing with. So what, the, what we've learned from that and what you're seeing in Sierra Leone, is especially, for example, for exams classes, they're trying to make sure that the girls can take their exams now. They're trying to come back to school quickly. They're trying to reopen. Uh, for girls who are in those transition, transition years, because those are really important years for a number of things, for the rite of passage that happens here for girls, the female, where female genital cutting takes place. It's really important for girls for marriage because, you know, that's where most times parents then say, oh, you've completed that milestone, it's time to get married and all. And, and all of these things go underground when society is locked down and schools are closed. So you've seen a much more intentional, both by not just government here, yeah, but also by people in our sector, CSOs, NGOs, who are working intentionally in communities. So I think we've all learned that schools are transformational in girls' lives. And, and when you take that away for an unprescribed number of time, that's also important. It's when you just shut it down for, you know, indefinitely, it makes things even worse. And so there's a call to make sure there's an end date. We're closing, exactly. but we will be reopening 
So yeah. you're giving people both hope and an ability to plan, probably Absolutely. more importantly. You've just talked about this, but I just want to give a little bit more sort of space and air to this idea of schools as places where young women can find their voices um, and organize themselves. Talk about how you do that. What are some of the mechanisms for that? And what are some of the challenges? We do all this research where we map communities and ask girls where you feel safe in this community. And oftentimes there's not a lot where girls feel a safe space where they can congregate and just be. So one is just the power of friends, people you can talk to. Two is the power of having a safe space where you can congregate. Three is the power of having a mentor, um, somebody you can talk to and engage with. And four is the, the power of just the imagination that school provides for you. It's a, it's a place to, to think about problems, think about solutions and hope that incredible hope that school gives you so when we in our work and when we think about this for girls we say to people you know quality is important but let's do not let the perfect be the enemy of the good that there is a good in just having a school that's a good in itself you got to understand that for females just being in school one more year changes so many other things in terms of your life outcomes as well for you. So that's something that we, we focus on. But also in our work, we try to think about compliments to that. So for girls who have dropped out of school who are out of school, it's intentionally creating those kinds of structures in their communities. So we have this informal girls only spaces where we encourage girls to come together. We provide an incentive for them to come together, provide a mentor, and then provide an intentional um, content a much more radical political education content for organization, for critical thinking, to exactly empower them to think about, you know, what are the tools of oppression? You know, why are you in this position that you are in, the, in this place right now? And again, and how can you be part of the collective liberation and seeing other females as allies? Because we're socialized, females are socialized to see other females with suspicion. And that's kind of also part of our society. One critical part of that radical political education, frankly, is just comprehensive sex education. Because the most, the most radical thing is, is sex. You know, it's not about money. We say it's about sex. It's, it's the thing that our society fears the most is female sexual liberation. And that's critical part of that, of that education. And so we've see, we're seeing that now come back and um, it's, it's going to be part of the main government curriculum. But there are certainly a number of elements to that that absolutely must be part of the curriculum every day. We're aware that the government is not there, but as activists, we continue to push that. We continue to work with them. Where are schools with respect to coronavirus? Are you closed? Are you open? And what has this period of learning been like for you? In other words, there were the lessons from Ebola, and what are the lessons right now from from COVID-19? Yeah, so as you said earlier on, the big, the big lessons were A, to not just close schools indefinitely, to make sure that you're constantly giving hope, the hope of schools. B, is to provide distance learning as much as you can and in much more innovative ways than it was done before in Ebola. So we learned a lot of lessons in terms of what works. So schools were closed, yes, the closed schools, but even the notice that came out had a definite date by which they expected schools to reopen. Of course, we have passed those dates, but then there's been updates every time when that this is, is, is pushed back so people know that government is working. And immediately from day one that schools closed here, 
there were different teams that were set up immediately working on the reopening of schools and what will need to happen in different scenario plannings. So the Minister of Education has done a fantastic job mobilizing um, groups like us, CSOs and different experts to think through the different scenarios for reopening schools. Um, and in two days, actually, um, I think on the 1st of July, there's going to be uh, schools are going to reopen um, for exams classes. So making sure that people who need to take public exams, so that's grade 12, grade 9, grade 6, are all going to reopen. And there have been protocols that have been put in place, including giving all the schools masks, making sure that places are, um, you know, there are sanitization things happening, that they're properly cleaned up, the school system, teachers have all been trained, they're designated teachers, there are protocols that have been put in place. And, all, and these are all lessons that we learned um, from Ebola and have been applied and we're, you know, um, um, applying those really well. Um, and making sure that in, in case there are any cases in schools, that the protocols are really set and they're clear. But the thing that's really important is it sends a message that we understand that education is critical and that we do not want our kids to lose out. In terms of what we're doing as well differently is we quickly mobilized uh, um, different means of getting to communities and directly to girls. During Ebola, there were not a lot of direct girls, if any, interventions as far as education was concerned. The interventions were all very generic and just limited to radio. Now, we do not only have radio, but you know, government regulations, for example, says you cannot have more than 20 people meeting at a time. So we have different informal groups that are bringing girls, 10 groups of girls together in different communities with mentors, even in this time, and pushing direct content to them you know, using phones, mobile phones, pushing safeguarding content, pushing uh, life-saving content to girls. And just to follow up on the distance learning, you said you learned about what works with distance learning and what doesn't. I'm curious if you had any other thoughts on that because the whole world is very interested in that question right now. Yeah, I think being in class in front of a teacher is tough. But then being in, just sitting in front of your radio and listening to somebody just go on in a monotonous way it's even much more difficult. So one thing was what, what we had here in Ebola was you just had these teachers on radio just talking at kids. And it was incredibly boring and kids could not. So what, we have, what we're seeing now is there's role playing. The teachers have real students in class um, in front of them, engaging them. And that's much more exciting. What we're seeing also is the use, for example, Purposeful, we've invested a lot in radio drama. So we're using drama as a means of learning. So we're combating the curriculum into drama. And so we have groups of girls come together who are part of school and basically role-playing what's happening now in their lives, but using that as a way to push content, to push education content. And that's much more effective and we're getting incredibly much more positive feedback as well on, on, on how you know, they get much more of the information via the drama than via what, you know, the radio teaching or PSAs directly. So using that, for example, is, is, um, is, is really critical. And then just timing with distance learning. What time of the day um, works and how you frame that. You know, it's, because it's distance learning, doesn't necessarily have to be early morning the same time that schools typically work because, you know, people's lives, especially girls' lives, are organized a little bit differently when they have to be home. 
they have to take on additional responsibilities at home and things like that. And so making sure you're working with that on that time. And the um, incentive on the other end to intentional listening circles. So we provide incentive to say, if there are five of you in your community, come together. Oftentimes with a, maybe a, a, an older person to support you to listen together. And then you can role, role play as well. And after the distance learning, we're supporting with um, conversation um, guides. So at Purposeful, we're sending conversation guides to, to the phones of mentors across the country to say, when you listen, after you listen, these are uh, questions you can ask and talk amongst yourselves. So it's not just in the past, it was just this one way. You just, you tune in, you listen, and it was over, and it was fine, it was supposed to be fun, but no, people didn't, you know, learning was not taking place. So we're trying to make sure we do that. And I think those are lessons we learned as well from the Ebola and the, and the work that we did as well after Ebola. Can you give me an example of that, uh, the role-playing and the drama, just what that might look like? Yeah, so absolutely. What, we, what we've done is, so we, we, we had uh, the whole contents of what do we want girls to learn? We map that out first. What do we want girls to learn in each week? What, what is the major learning point? So we look at it from a health perspective, but just from a literacy perspective, um, and we map that out. And then we work with a professional scriptwriter and say, you know what we're going to do? is instead of using this content just as get somebody to come talk down at girls, let's weave this into a story that is centered and rooted in the lives of girls, in their reality. So we had, uh, we've developed a storyline that has a leading uh, girls character, leading groups of girls who come together in a, in a small circle. It's a girl circle, it's called. And these girls come together, they organize a friendship group, they're dealing with corona, they're dealing with the fact that schools are closed, but their lives have to go on. But in their lives, they deal with critical issues. So we want to teach them that the importance of hand washing, the importance of uh, calling the emergency number, the fact that transactional sex, the pressure of transactional sex goes up in this. So we make sure that a character in the drama has to deal with that situation. So they go into the group to seek help and we role played out, out completely in an exciting drama with complete cliffhangers. But then we back end the drama with a real life conversation after that's led by girls at the end of the drama to say, oh, look at what Lucy was going through in that drama. What could the situation be? And in that way, the girls on the other end are listening to that they can relate to that. It's, it's, it's real. It's vivid. It's not just somebody telling them. and It's based in a scenario that they can relate with. So at the end of it all, we ask questions to see what did you get from, from, this, from this story today? What were the issues that were in there? And we find out that at the end of the day, they get clearly that we, you know, what we wanted them to get. We wanted, we wanted them to understand about the power of hand washing, the power of friendship in this time, the power of how you say no the power of, you know, the things you need to learn. But all of those things were packed in a short 15 minutes, 20 minutes drama that is back-ended by an exciting conversation. We've developed a, a, a brand that's called Karokura, which means in the local um, um, languages here, it means new moon. So it's this idea of keeping hope alive. It's a new moon. And in the middle of all of this, 
there's a new dawn. It's a new moon. In the West, we're having a conversation about, is this the moment to transform education? Or are we at a tipping point? I, I think without a question that if, if we miss this moment, then, then there's something, I mean, there's something wrong with us anyway, but then, <laughs> but then, 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 then we're, you know, I, I think we'll, future generations will hold us to account for, I, th- I think the moment stares us in the face. In Sierra people had sworn, including all the way to the top, that pregnant girls will never go to school here. But as schools were closing down for corona was when the minister and the, and the government announced that pregnant girls will now forever go to school in Sierra Leone. And the opposition was muted because there was a reminder of Ebola in people's minds. When we talk about it, and, and that's, an, that's where you see an opportunity for and an example for how a radical change can be effected in the middle of this moment. But I think we need much more. And I think we, we, those of us who care about this, need to be in the middle of trying to center that change. It's, you know, what's happening now in Sierra Leone, people are out there protesting. A five-year-old was raped. For example, there was a, a major case of a, a Khadija's um, was raped and she, she was killed. Um, you know, she died as a result of that. And people are out there protesting and calling for justice. But those of us whose work is that justice understand and need to try to make sure that people are not just calling for justice for Khadija and to hang the rapist for Khadija. But it's a moment for changing the rape culture in our society and asking for much more long-term reforms. And it's the same thing. You know, that anger of people in the Black Lives Matter can be, oh, let's just, you know, cut the money that we pay in the, you know, the, the budgets for the police, but that's not enough. Or let's just get the people that killed George Floyd prosecuted, but that's not enough. We need to change the system. And but that change has to come from people like you and I who think about this, who have been organizing for a long time, who work on this on a daily basis, and who need to be clear on what the prescription for that change and be bold and be, and be radical in, the, in that prescription. Why was David Senge's tweet so radical? And tell everybody what it was. Actually, so my wife took that picture of the, of the <laughs> okay. tweet. Yes, exactly. Um, so, you know, David uh, Young, Minister of Education in Sierra Leone, is working from home. He has, he has two, two kids. One is a one-year-old um, baby and he's on calls, in between calls. But he's his son. His wife is also a professional. She's working. So David has to carry the baby. Um, David carries the baby on, on his back in a way that is typical of how women carry their babies here in Africa. He's on calls. Actually, they were on a high-level call, I think, with the president and he's moving between cabinet meetings and things like that. And he's carrying his baby and having to take care of his baby. And, and he tweeted about it. And the world, uh, I think, were just moved by it. It's the idea that a young man who has power and is working, but also is taking care of his baby. And it shows to all the fathers in Africa that it's not inconsistent to take care of your kid and also be a professional. Okay, three super quick questions. Your favorite book about learning? I am always reading books 
um, that challenged my way of thinking. And, and, and I've been obsessed with Tanesi quotes between the world and me. And I like it because it's about learning. It's about teaching his, his son about the world and how he sees the world. And, and I think education has to always include radical reimagination and deconstruction and all of that. So I really love that book. Your favorite book that's not about learning? Is there any book that's not about learning? Um, my <laughs> <laughs> not worth reading. <laughs> yes, not not what you know. I really love um, the Confederacy of Dunces. I don't know if you if you if you know that book, but it's it's one of my all time favorite books actually. And I, I I don't know if I can say it's not about learning, but I love it because. I think of society in general as a confederacy of dancers. And I, and I love that book uh, because I, I, you know, I, I like how it, how it weaves and reduces the nuances of society in that one life story. Last question. What have you been binge watching in lockdown? <laughs> um, my wife and I are watching the Watchmen on HBO. It's a fantastic series. Uh, I think, it's you know sent you know looks about race race relations and superpowers and things like that and it's it's both been shocking and I don't typically watch violent series and I think it's it does have a lot of violence in it that's some of it is dis, disconcerting for me but I love that she's made me watch it and and I'm, and I'm really into it loving it. Thank you so much for talking to us and good luck with your very important work. Thank you so much for having me and thanks for telling these stories. I think it's really important. I really wanted this conversation to go on forever. Turner helped me understand so much about the need for radical organizing around education to actually make it transformative and how we too often treat it, as he says, as the furniture around us. I was struck by his reflections on power and this comment, the lack of education and critical thinking is not an accident. People who want to keep power do not want a citizenry of critical thinkers. I admire how he confronts the significant challenges facing Sierra Leone, 70% illiteracy, the hard reality that one in 10 girls who start education will finish. And I think we can all learn from the intentionality he applies to empowering girls and women by designing places for them to gather, even in COVID, places to build social capital, to connect with friends and mentors, and to use those moments to learn about sex and power and oppression and the need to think critically. I learned a lot about how Ebola helped shape the government and his organization's reaction to coronavirus, making sure there was an end date to school closures, making sure distance learning content was not boring and one-dimensional, creating these dramas for girls around the issues they would face, and then weaving in the content that mattered about hand-washing and emergency services, but also how to deal with the rise in transactional sex that comes when society shuts down and girls do not have schools to protect them. If you want to learn more about Turner's work, go to wearepurposeful.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.